listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So let's jump into this message today, this sermon. Like I said, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I, I used to, uh, yesterday we were up in, we were up in Hiawassee. Somebody told me this morning, they said, it's, it's fun to say, terrible to visit. And uh, that's true. So we were up in Hiawassee and, and me and Mark Lewis, we spent a lot of the day going out uh, just off-roading. We found some trails, went across some rivers, went down some rivers. It was really awesome. And during that time, we just kept saying, man, the air is so fresh and clean out here. It's just amazing, just God's creation. The weather was beautiful. There was you know, not a cloud in the sky, unlike today. It was, it was just gorgeous. It's a great day, fresh air. And then we're driving back uh, into town late last night, me and Shannon were, and you get a, you know, there's a, there's a different kind of um, experience driving through downtown Atlanta. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You notice the smell that you drive, especially if you notice it around here. I noticed it driving down 155, but driving through Atlanta, it's just like, man, this is different than all the fresh air that I was experiencing. This has a little more of a, an herbal, you know, um, tinge to it. But I remember uh, years ago, I lived in LA for about three years and I would fly into uh, Los Angeles, into LAX, and living there, I never really noticed this. But I remember a couple of times I, we flew into LA and uh, as, I was, as we were approaching Los Angeles, you would look down and LA was just covered in this like green cloud, different kind of green cloud that's in Atlanta, um, but a, a green cloud and it was just, it was smog. It was just the exhaust from tons of businesses, from people's cars, just a ton of people packed there into the city. But while you're there in the city, you don't notice it. You had to have this vantage from up high to see, man, this is what I'm living in? This is what I'm breathing in all the time? Here, here's the connection for us this morning. Worldliness is like a moral smog. We're living in the midst of it and we don't even realize it a lot of times. But the epicenter of that worldliness is sin. So for a moment, I'm gonna define two terms for you. One is autonomy. We know what autonomy is. Autonomous, an individual, individualistic mindset. Back in the 90s, we would, even if we were leading worship, you would say, just draw a circle around you and Jesus. It's just y'all. Very autonomous way of worshiping. But then I want you to know this other term, ontology. Ontology is the design, the, the reason for which you were created, your purpose that was given to you. And currently in our culture, autonomy has trumped ontology. Now, notice if we go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the way that we were created, that's our ontology. God said, here's how I want you to live. Here's who I want you to be. Here is your purpose. I'm breathing my life into you so that you can reflect me. It's all about the Trinity. It's all about community. It's about being part of my creation. That's why I'm creating you in my image. And in the world today, we've said, no, no, no. 
This is my life. I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of the way that I was created, regardless of the creator's purpose for me. Autonomy has trumped ontology. We saw this a couple years ago. We were preaching through the book of Judges. And several times throughout the book of Judges, the author writes, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. So this has been going around, going along for years. This is nothing new. But we see this pervasively even in 2023 with the pro-abortion movement. We see it with the LGBTQIXYZ plus movement. We see it with this movement that says you can choose and vacillate between whatever gender you want to choose. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, there's people out there. We also see it with an increasing amount of consumer debt. Because I want to live the life that I want to live. Yeah, hold, 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 back up just a little bit, bro, back up. We see it all around us and we breathe it in. We see it in the entertainment that we pursue, the things that we look at, the conversations, the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our resources. It's all around us to the point that we don't even understand it. We don't even see what's happening around us. It's really subtle. This worldliness is really subtle. I might have told you all this story. I probably did. I forget. Um, but there is a, if, I, if I've already told you, then I apologize. Uh, but uh, several years ago, there was this news article that came out. This lady had a python. Did I tell you this story? I don't know. Maybe it's, an, it's a really cool story. There's a lady who had a python, a pet python. First of all, you think I'd knock on people who have cats, you know, as animals. I'll come watch your cat, okay? Like, I'll, fe I'll feed your cat, okay? All right, I've done that. If you have a pet snake, um, just get behind me, Satan. Like, there's, I'm not coming over to feed your pet snake, nothing. I don't, I don't uh, want to be, if you have one today, you're like, I've got one. Okay, don't, don't ever, don't talk to me. That's fine. Don't tell me, at least. This lady had a pet python, and, uh, and she noticed, and she would let the python out for some God only knows reason, but she would let it out, and she called her vet one day, and she said, hey, my python keeps laying beside me, stretching itself all the way out. And he's been doing this for a couple of days. Like, he's a nice python, you know, nice python. It's like an honest lawyer. It's a short-winded preacher. You know what I'm talking about? So uh, he's laying beside me. Like, he's not trying to attack me. He's laying beside me. And the vet said, you need to watch out. What the python is doing is sizing you up to see if he can swallow you whole. It was subtle, but there was a motivation there. That python had an agenda. In the same ways we look around us, worldliness has an agenda. First John chapter two, I want us to see this. So we, we saw this back in, back in the book of Judges. We, we all did what was right in our own eyes. Even the people of God did. We're gonna see it right here in first John. This again, is nothing new. We have thousands of years separating these two things. It says first John chapter two, this is up on the screen if you don't wanna turn there, verses 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we see here, even as John writes, we see kingdom ethics. This is how you are to live. Here's how this connects with apocalyptic literature. So we looked at the first half of Daniel, the narrative part, and that's usually where preachers stop. If you listen along as Caleb read, for good reason. So we have picked up in the second half of Daniel this year. We've been looking at chapter 7 through 12, which is apocalyptic literature, literature talking about things that are to come, the apocalypse, either come really shortly or come in a long time, and sometimes both. But as we understand this kingdom ethic, the reason that apocalyptic literature is there in the book of Daniel and in the majority of the prophets is so that the people would have a little bit of a glimpse, kind of a weird glimpse, a foggy glimpse, maybe even a confusing glimpse, but at least a glimpse of things that were to come so that they would know how to better live today. God wanted them to know bad things are going to come. I'm in control of all of these things, so be ready today. This is not about how we should be living tomorrow, how we can figure out what tomorrow looks like. The reason we have apocalyptic literature is so we can know how to live our lives today. That's the purpose of this passage. And so as we look at this passage, the majority of chapter 11, the portion that we're gonna look at today, is historical. So it was happening very soon after Daniel was written. He's going to spend a verse or two talking about Persia. He's going to spend verses three through 20 talking about Greece. And then next week, uh, we're going to be looking at whatever the future is. I'll be down in Locust Grove preaching down there. Uh, So if you have any questions about today, uh, those will be answered next week, hopefully. If you have any questions about next week, uh, see somebody else, whoever's preaching. But here's what, in these 35 verses in chapter 11, there are 135 prophecies that were fulfilled. 135 prophecies, a ton of prophecies. What God wants us to know is that he is in complete control of all things, past, present, and future. That's what I want us to see and that we can rest in him. Here's what Charles Swindoll says about Daniel chapter 11, who's a popular preacher. He says, this is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. And Sinclair Ferguson, if you haven't listened to him preach, has an amazing accent. He says, What is at stake is this vital issue. Does God rule history and can he so communicate with us that his future purposes may be disclosed to us before the events? And so it's it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, well, God's over all of human history. Let's take that theological concept. God knows all things. He's in control of all things. It's easy for us to to verbalize those. And we're going to step into this really weird chapter of Daniel chapter 11 and say, okay, here's what we're doing is we are saying, yes, God does know all things. God is in control of all things. How do we live today? Do we live knowing that? And do we live resting in his sovereignty, in his control? That's what I want us to walk away with. So let's jump in, Daniel chapter 11. I'm not going to go into detail just so you know about every single part of these. If you want a commentary recommendation, I can provide those for you. Uh, we're not going to dive into every single, every single person. I want to hit on a few stories here in Daniel chapter 11. Just know that every single one of these persons that's named, every king, every place, every action, it has a historical significance. And you can go back and read even secular historians 
and it supports every single one of these. It's pretty wild. So Hebrews, uh, sorry, Hebrews, Daniel chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is really good too, by the way. But Daniel 11 is where we are today. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Verse number two. And now I will show you the truth. We saw back in chapter 10 and verse 21, we saw this book of truth. This book of truth, and we see it referenced in Revelation chapter five, that's going to be opened only by Jesus. This is the book of Revelation, the things that are to come. This is not the Lamb's book of life. This is a little bit different. This is the book of things that are to happen. This is the execution of God's will in and through human history. That's the book of truth that he's talking about here. So I'm gonna reveal to you what is going to happen. We'll continue verse number two again. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Now, where is he talking? Uh, where is he speaking from? He's, he's speaking from Persia, the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persia. And we've seen that all throughout the book. And this one he's saying, there are three more kings that are going to arise in Persia. And then the fourth shall be far richer than all of the other ones. This fourth king is Ahasuerus. Everybody say Ahasuerus. Y'all sounded good. Everybody on this side, say Ahasuerus. All right, there we go. Not bad, not bad. So if you want to, this King Ahasuerus is mentioned, uh, and maybe you know him by the name Xerxes in the book of Esther that follows. So again, historically we see this. Here's what we know about Ahasuerus, is that God used him, God used Persia to get his people, the Jews, back to their homeland. Because in order for Jesus to arrive, to hit the scene, the people of God had to be back in their home country to fulfill the prophecy. So God uses Persia, God uses Ahasuerus, the king of the Persians, to get his people back there. Then we pick up in verse number three, again, verses three through 20 are talking about the nation of Greece. So verse number three. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Verse four. Real quick, the mighty king right there is Alexander the Great. And we've already seen him so far in the book. We've seen him talked about, referenced. This mighty king is Alexander the Great. Verse four, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. Notice the, the quickness there. And divided into how many winds of heaven? Four. We've seen this before, right? We've seen Alexander's kingdom being broken into four generals. We saw this already in Daniel. But not to his posterity. What does posterity mean? Any takers? Children. How many kids did Alexander the Great have? None. That's why his kingdom went to his four generals. He didn't have any kids. When was this written? Before or after Alexander the Great? Before. How accurate is it? 100%. Nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So we see here, Alexander the Great attacks Darius' kingdom in Persia. Darius had 100,000 men. Alexander the Great had a, had a very small microcosm, 25 to 30,000 men. Darius lost 20,000 men. Alexander the Great, which is why he was a mighty king, he only lost about 100 men. It was incredible. Now, if you notice right here in verse number four, the kingdom rises and falls quickly. It's also Alexander the Great conquered the world from beginning to end in about 10 years. He started when he was 23. He had the world conquered by the time he was 33 years old. In fact, historians say, this is the known world at this time, historians say that then Alexander the Great went to a, a deep depression because he had no one else to conquer. He was like, man, I wish I had somebody else to conquer. Where have we already seen Alexander the Great? What is he referenced? What type of animal is, is Alexander the Great referenced as? 
a leopard, a really fast one, right? He was also referenced as what? Remember the other one? Remember the goat? Yeah. Somebody's like, goat? <laughs> Don't want to be wrong, but I still heard that. All right, so you're right. Good job. So he's referenced there, a leopard is what? Really fast. How many, the, the leopard has four wings, a winged leopard, even faster than a regular leopard. So he's saying here, this is talking about Alexander the Great. He's a mighty, he's um, he really fast. He is, uh, his kingdom is given to these four winds, these four generals. He has no kids. Verse number five. Then the king, this is where we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of scooch through this. It's kind of weird. Kings of the south and the north, what's going on? I'm going to tell you about these things. If you don't believe me, that's okay. You can go look it up yourself. We're not going to dig deep into these details because the big point is that God is in control of all of these things. Historically, we can look back. You can, again, secular historians support every single one of these things. We see here then the king of the south. The king of the south is Ptolemy. Everybody say Ptolemy. If you want to look him up, it starts with a P. All right, silent P. So be careful if you are going to look these guys up. The king of the south is Seleucid. Everybody say Seleucid. Okay, awesome. So then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So essentially, here's what we have. King of the north, king of the south. Israel is caught right in the middle of these two kings. That's why it's important for the Jews to be reading this, looking ahead as they are in exile, understanding what's going to happen. They're hopeless. And so God says, let me provide a bit of hope for you. And as these things begin to unfold, they're like, man, God's got this. This is amazing. So Ptolemy dies, his son Antiochus, everybody say Antiochus. Yeah, nice. Antiochus, and we talked about him, we saw him earlier, and we'll see him next week. Antiochus Epiphanes is actually the fourth Antiochus. He's the one who comes in and we have uh, this Roman Jewish battle. He's crazy. Uh, he was called the madman, but this is Antiochus the first. So Ptolemy has a son. He takes on the name Antiochus the, the first. Okay. So that's where he has a son who's even greater than him. So here's what happens. We have, we have these two Kings. Okay. Antiochus the first and Seleucid. We're going to set those names aside. Okay. We have this one King, King of the North. And he says, you know what? I want to make uh, I want to make a treaty with the other king in the south. So if you look at verses six through eight, even at the beginning of verse number nine, here's the story. We have these two kings, and oftentimes they would marry off one of their daughters as a way of making a peace treaty or agreement so that the kingdom would be even stronger. You take my daughter and we'll work together in this, okay? So first king, he divorces his wife. Now he could have just taken, he could have just taken the wife of, of the other king, but he didn't want to do that. He was like, you know what? This seems like a really good time for me to get rid of her. We'll see why later. So that king gets rid of his wife. He divorces her. Her name was uh, Laodice. Everybody say Laodice. So we get the name Laodicea, same thing. She actually uh, is the reason that city is named, New Testament, okay? So we have Laodice there. And he, the other king says, you can have my daughter. So first king says, awesome. I get rid of Laodice. I get your daughter, Berenice. Everybody say Berenice. Okay. So he gets Berenice. Berenice has a son. So now we have this, man, this is awesome. This is really great. These two kingdoms are working together. Well, Laodice is over here. She gets jealous. She decides to go and kill this king, her former husband. She kills his wife, Berenice, and she kills their son, the heir to the throne. 
Again, look at verses six through eight, beginning of verse number nine. She kills all of them, and then her and her son, they begin to rule the kingdom. Well, what that does is it divides the kingdom again. So we have these battles, northern king, southern king, boom, back and forth, back and forth. It's like days of our lives, drama throughout this whole thing, okay? Do you also watch days of our lives? Is that a common? Okay. Uh, General Hospital, my mom used to watch that one. Hope she doesn't listen to this. Used to, she used to watch this. So we have this back and forth. So now we're going to get down. Let's look at verse number 14. If you look at verses 10 through 13, we have the same thing. They're just saying they're, they're fighting. They're rising up. Fight, fight, fight. Back and forth. Verse 14. Notice what the Israelites try to do, the Jews, the, the Hebrews. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. Here's what the, the Jews were hoping. They were hoping if they got involved, they could make this vision come to pass even sooner. They were hoping, let's step in so we can help fulfill this vision. Let's, by our own power, bring some hope to this situation. What does the end of verse number 14 say? But they shall fail. Because it's not their power that's making these things come to pass. It's the power of God that's making these things come to pass. Verse number 16, but he who comes against him, talking about the king of the north, shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. What's the glorious land? We saw it in chapter 8 and verse number 9. We saw it in uh, chapter 10. The glorious land is not America, okay? It's not, it's not that uh, prophetic here. The glorious land is the land of Israel, He's standing there in Jerusalem. Historically, we see this happens. Verse number 17, we have another political alliance. Then he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the, the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Here we have another political alliance taking place. And we have Antiochus III, not the fourth yet, Antiochus III, who gives his daughter Cleopatra. Now, this is not the Cleopatra that we all know of. She happens about 100 years later, but this is actually her namesake, Cleopatra. So Antiochus III gives his daughter to the king in order to make an agreement. Oh, king, can, here, you take my daughter. She's beautiful. Can we be, can we be good now? They're like, okay, they're good. It's at peace. What we see right here in verse number 17, this political alliance bites the dust though because Cleopatra, she really loves this king even more than her own dad. So she gives the secrets to her new husband and says, let's go take him out. Again, battle, battle, war, 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 bad. Same thing over and over, all the way up until we get to Christ. Not that it ends because of Christ, but we see historically that this happens. Uh, Antiochus III is humiliated. If you look down at verse number 18, afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. So Antiochus III, he lost thousands of his troops. And he's like, man, I can't, I, I can't, I can't win for losing. Everybody's against me, even my own daughter. So what he does is he goes and begins to attack the Romans, which the Roman Empire has not really begun yet, but it's just starting. The city of Rome and the people are starting to gather there. There's this faction rising up there in Greece. But so he turns to the coastland, to Rome. And he says, I'm gonna go take them out. Well, that doesn't even work either. He's further humiliated. He's a terrible leader. So if you look down at verse number, um, at the end of 19, it says, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. So he's lost to them. He's lost to them. He's like, I'm just going to go back home. 
but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. What literally what this Antiochus III, he stumbled and fell, he died, he should not be found. He was killed by some forest robbers. He didn't even die a, a great death. And so even the way that this king died is foretold hundreds of years before it happens. Here are five questions I want us to ask. Strange text, right? It's like, you know, Spurgeon said, whatever passage you're preaching from, make a beeline to the cross. Even if you've got to jump through hedges, make your way to the cross. That resonates with me. Spurgeon said a lot, of, a lot of stuff that I really agree with. When he said that, I'm like, okay, how do we get from here to Jesus, okay? So here are five questions I want us to ask of this, of this text this morning that I, I, I hope will help us clarify as we understand the fact that we don't, we don't need pithy this morning. I'll get to these in just a second. We don't need pithy. We don't need, here's how your life can be better, but we need prophetic. We need, this is what's going to happen. It may be scary. It may be dark. It, it, there may be persecution. It may look, it may turn out really bad for you. You may be stuck in the middle between Northern and Southern kingdoms. We don't know. We're in the middle of this worldliness. Whatever that looks like, we need prophetic. Here's how you are to live in the midst of that. So here are five questions I want us to ask. The first one is this. What does this text teach us about God? At least two things about God. One, being in control of all human history is a really tough job. It's a really tough job. Like, it's wild. Keeping all of these things in order, it's like, oh, yeah, but he's God. Is that our reaction when our lives are out of control? Oh, yeah, just faith, trust. Yeah, he's got it. He's God. Secondly, I think it's important to understand where we see God in this passage is because he's not only at a macro meta level, but he's also at a micro level. To the names of these people, to the kings and the daughters and the way this king dies, all of these things just lining up perfectly. He's in every single one of these details. It's crazy. We actually saw it already back in chapter four and verse number 17. I'll flip back there. You can go there with me if you want to. You don't have to. But in 417, Daniel already told us this. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know, and this, he's talking here to King Neb, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest, lowliest of men. It's not about us putting ourselves in power. Daniel here is telling King Neb, the most powerful king in the whole world, the reason you are ruling is because God put you there. Even though you're lowly, even though you're evil. Psalm chapter two and verse number four, the beginning of Psalm chapter two, talks about how the nations rage and how they want to fight back against God. In verse number four, it says that God sits in the heavens and laughs. Keep on raging. Keep on bringing it. It's like if I actually wanted to play basketball against my eight-year-old Kingston. If I actually went like, you know, full bore playing basketball with every single ounce of ability that I had, he would never score. Like he would never touch the ball. And I, that's the picture almost that we have of God there, just holding the ball up above his head saying, ha, 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 I'm two feet taller than you, you know? Time's infinity. I don't do that to Kingston often, though. 
only when he deserves it, which is never, okay? My kids don't sin. So, but we get the picture there of God sitting in the heavens and laughing because kings and kingdoms come and go. They rise and fall. They live and die. They're in power and then they're not and everything is under the control of God. That's it. Secondly, what does this text teach us about fallen humanity? It teaches us that we are bloodthirsty for power and possessions, and we will do anything in our might to get those things. We will lie, cheat, steal, hide, and we think, yeah, yeah, but I'm not a king. Let's go back. This past week, if we had to look at your life, are there areas of your life where you wanted to maintain power or control or even the power over someone's perception of you or maintain the power over them not knowing a part of your life and so you hide? And so you lie. And so you steal. Maybe there's something that you want so bad, you just can't help yourself. You'll do anything you can to get that. And friend, if I, as we look here at the passage, the same is true for us today. As we walk further and further into the future, those who are okay with evil are going to succeed. We see it in our culture. It, it is not popular to be moral. It is not popular to follow Jesus Christ. It is not popular or advantageous to say that I have surrendered my life to Christ. I'm following him with everything. Those who are evil will continue to succeed more and more in the same way they did here. Because the Bible is not about what happened. It's about what always happens. The spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Antichrist is just as active today as he has been for centuries, for millennia. The third question for us to ask is, what does this text teach us about Christ? What does it teach us about Christ? It at least teaches us that in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Christ will last forever. If we go back to chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, we saw this. Daniel already had this vision. This was the very first vision. He said there, the son, this is talking about Jesus Christ, the son of man. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the father, and was presented before him. And to him, to Jesus Christ, listen, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We saw it in chapter nine. If we look over verse, uh, chapter nine, verse 24, go there with me if you would. Um, chapter nine, verse 24, click over there with me. This is talking about the kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate. We saw this a few weeks ago. Christ came in chapter 9, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Here's what Jesus Christ came to do. To finish the transgression. Six things. First, to finish the transgression. Second, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 
We, we see the distinction here, the dichotomy, the contrast between these power-hungry dictators that are serving their own kingdoms with power for, for pleasure, for possessions. And we see a good king here who comes from the lowly city of Galilee and who is more concerned with the cares and the needs of others. Those who are created in his image, but those who have rebelled against him, he's more concerned with our needs than even his own. And Isaiah says, it pleased the father to crush him. That's the kind of king that we serve. He set aside his power, his authority to be humbled to give generously and freely so that we could receive grace and mercy, the things that we so desperately need. The fourth question about this passage, this text, and you could almost ask these questions about any passage or text, I would encourage you to do so. The other thing, if you notice this flow, uh, it has a, a gospel narrative to it and it lines up with um, even the liturgy here that we have on Sunday mornings, that God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus saves us, Jesus sends us. That's, that should be the narrative and the liturgy of our lives. As we set up our Sunday service, that's the liturgy that we put into it. These are the questions as we go to a passage. How do we see the holiness of God? How do we see our brokenness? How does this point to Jesus, to a better king? How then should we live as we are called? But the fourth question is this, what does God want us to know? What does God want us to know, even from this strange passage and as we look at the kingdom of Christ, we know this, that in Christ, pride is replaced by humility. Naturally, we are born into and given over to and pursue and inundated in this smog with pride. But in Christ, we can experience humility. In Christ, our greed turns to generosity. In Christ, our self-serving nature is replaced with serving others. And in Christ, instead of pursuing our own kingdom, our own power, our own possessions, our own pleasure, in Christ, we can pursue his power, his glory, his kingdom. That's what God wants us to know here in this passage. <laughs> Lastly, what does God want us to do? Or maybe a better way of asking this question is, how does God want us to live? Firstly, we can learn from the mistakes of others. We can see where the pursuit of our own power, possessions, pleasure, where the, that pursuit, where it gets us, where it gets them. And we can easily make parallels to our own lives and we see our own, our own downfall when we breathe in the smog of worldliness. It leads us to destruction. But we don't say, okay, well, instead of living this way, just live this way, just live a better life, just add morals onto it, just do more good things than bad things. No, no, we must be transformed from the inside out. The issue is not replacing bad things with good things, it's replacing a dead heart with a live heart. We saw that in Ezekiel, we saw it even in the confession in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, we see that. We don't pursue good things, we pursue God things. We don't just conform ourselves to his, work, to his word. We must first be transformed from the inside out. It begins in the heart. So here we must 
in order to pursue the kingdom of God, in order to put on his traits of humility, of generosity, of serving others, I would plead with you to put your faith in a good God who is in control of all things. And even when it seemed like God was most out of control, when Jesus Christ was on the cross with his blood pouring out, with his beard pulled from his face with a crown of thorns, with him being mocked for me and for you, when it seemed like the enemy was laughing at that point because he was victorious, when our King Jesus was placed into the ground when he was dead, when it seemed like God was most out of control, friend, Jesus Christ rose back up from that tomb declaring, I am always in control of all things. And today, friend, he is not too far gone. That's not too far in the past. Your sin is not too much for him to redeem because he is in control today and his grace is just as good and real and true today as it was then. That's where our hope is. Put your faith in him. Run to him. Three things I want to encourage you with. So those five questions, but just three things I want to encourage you with this morning. First, we should be less concerned with when Jesus will return than how we should live until then. We've seen this theme all throughout Daniel, and I would be amiss if I uh, missed the chance to harp on it yet again. The point of this passage is not history. The point of this passage is theology. It's not to know facts, but it's to point to Jesus Christ coming to redeem. If we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'll turn there, but you don't have to if you don't want to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. It says, but avoid, uh, sorry, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, more and more worldliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, and he even mentions people here, we're like, oh, let's just, we're just, we just want the good of every, this is good for them. Don't be like Hymenaeus. Everybody say Hymenaeus. If you don't know how to say something, you just say it with confidence, and people are like, oh, wow, that's right, okay. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Everybody say Philetus. Pretty sure that's wrong. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They're downplaying this resurrection. He's here talking about the resurrection from the dead, Christ's second coming. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Notice, the Lord knows who are his. That's our hope and rest this morning. We're gonna sing a song in just a minute talking about the storms came, the wind blew, and it was a really good analogy when it was still raining. But we can think back just to a few minutes ago, right? Give me a little bit of grace on that. We planned the song weeks ago. But we can think about the storms and the wind blowing, the storms of life as they come and they blow us. Our house was built on a firm, on Jesus Christ. We know that we are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from his iniquity. If you are in Christ, run away from sin. If you're in Christ, you are going to be pursuing your relationship with him. 
We should be less concerned with when Jesus is coming back, more concerned with how we should live until then. Secondly, community cannot be an elective, but it must be core curriculum. This has to take place in community. We can't just come over here and draw a circle around you and Jesus and say, this autonomous relationship that I have with Jesus. No, Jesus has a relationship with his bride, the church, a community. And as this is written to those who are in exile, these are small groups of Hebrews there in Babylonian captivity. He's saying, for you as a people, remind each other of these things. New Testament, gather together and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves. Friends, I'll tell you. uh, I need you here on Sunday mornings just as much as anybody else needs anyone else in this room. And I don't say that from a place of, man, when this place is full, I just go home with my ego. Oh, man, let me tell you how many people I got to talk to, I got to preach to this morning. Man, I needed that. No, no, no. I need the people who are in my life group. I need the people who are in my DNA group. I need my wife to call me out on sin. I need those who are around me to encourage and to press and to prod and to say, hey, brother, I don't, I love having Chris and Caleb in that way. They call me out on things. I need that. I need you. We are a community. And when you're not here or with your life group or with the DNA, when you're not gathered together with God's people, it's not just you who is missing out. It's those around you. It is your community. Thirdly, finally, God preserves his kingdom remnant for the arrival of his king, King Jesus' rule. We are being preserved in the midst of persecution. And they were experiencing way more persecution than a rainy Sunday morning. They were experiencing way more persecution than having somebody in office or having a law passed that they just didn't really like. but God was in complete control then. If you consider even the way that he was in control, what did the Persians do? If we look back historically at these people, the Persians allowed the Hebrews to go back to their land under God's plan. Who came next? After the Persians came the Greeks. Yeah, somebody whispered it, I think. The Spirit gave me that. Okay, I heard you. After the Persians came the Greeks, what did the Greeks give us? They gave us a common language. The New Testament is written in what language? Greek. So the Greeks gave us that by the hand of God, a common language so that the good news of Jesus could go to the whole world. Now we had a global worldwide language because of the Greeks. After the Greeks came the Romans, what did the Romans give us? They gave us transportation. They gave us roads all over the world so that the good news of Jesus Christ who showed up at just the right time so that that news could go to the ends of the earth fulfilling Genesis 1 and verse 28 which says go and make those image bearers go and multiply image bearers 
Romans, uh, sorry, Genesis 1:28. Be fruitful and multiply. Go. Matthew chapter 28, what does he say right there? Go, make disciples of all the nations. Same thing in Acts chapter one and verse number eight. Go to all around the world. How do we get around the world? Because of the Persians, because of the Greeks, because of the Romans. Who was over all of that? A sovereign and omnipotent, a providential God. And just like all of those kings who were simply pawns in his hand, we're more than that because he sent Jesus Christ for our sake, not just so that we could be pawns, but so that we could be in a relationship, so that we could be sons and daughters of him. If you want to use big theological words, we could say that God is all powerful. He's omnipotent, all powerful. He knows all things. He's omniscient. But the beauty of the gospel is there is a clear declaration that God is everywhere, always, that he is omnipresent. And because of the Holy Spirit, through his power, we can be indwelled with him. And when we gather as a church and we celebrate this meal of communion, it is a reminder of the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the kings of the world past, present, future, the kings of the world do not want to be broken or die. They are pursuing their own kingdom. But Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter two, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he was willingly broken. He was willingly for our sake put to death. He willingly had his life in place of ours, his blood shed, so that when the Father looks at us, he says, come on in. Come on in. I want to be with you. Come sit in my presence. I love you. When we identify with Christ and we say, I'm broken. I, I don't have things together. I'm messed up. We identify with Christ in his brokenness. And we say, I need your brokenness. I'm broken also. And he says, yes, now come identify with me in my righteousness, in my wholeness. So friends, as we participate in this meal that we call communion, we're reminded of Jesus Christ. And this meal is for those of us who are in need of a savior. Yesterday, today, right now, and even tomorrow. This is an encouragement for us that he has made himself available and he welcomes us into his lap, into his presence for us to call him dad. This is a reminder of our inheritance in Christ. This is a reminder that we have a better king that we're living and serving for a better kingdom. So I would encourage you, family, let's repent of sin. Let's be reminded of the fact that we need Jesus Christ and he promises to meet us in that need. And may we leave from here celebrating and rejoicing that we have him as a firm foundation. If you would join me for this meal.